permanence of covenant obligation. Our fourth term of ecclesiastical communion recognizes and asserts the binding force of the National Covenant of Scotland and of the Solemn League and Covenant of Scotland, England and Ireland. Subject to the restriction of moral duties, duties not peculiar to the British Isles, but applicable in all lands. It reads as follows, that public, social covenanting, is an ordinance of God, obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament. That the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution. And that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person. And in consistency with this, that the renovation of these covenants at Arkansas, 1712, was agreeable to the Word of God. These well-known documents are referred to as furnishing a special exemplification of a general truth, and the recognition of their obligations more than any other fact, marks our identity with the Church of Scotland during the Halcyon period of the Second Reformation. Forming, as they do, an essential part of the attainments reached at that time, as the issue of an active, earnest and long-continued struggle with despotism in the state, and lordly supremacy coupled with the foulest corruption in the Church. The disowning of her covenants stands connected with the practical rejection of her standards of doctrine, government and worship. They who offend in one point here, are guilty of all. There is a principle, however, involved which cannot be surrendered without opening the way for pernicious consequences, and the deeds in question cannot be repudiated otherwise than by ignoring this principle or proving its falsity. It is the principle that posterity may be, and in many cases are, rightfully and inviolably bound by the engagements of ancestors. Let us look at the question in this general aspect and bearing of it. Are the obligations assumed by the church in covenanting with God, imperative on succeeding generations till the object contemplated in the covenant has been secured and all its conditions fulfilled? The doctrine that covenant obligation binds posterity is entirely consonant with some of those natural relations that exist among men. It is founded in the natural and unquestionable right of parents to represent their children in various forms of social transaction. Parents, in almost countless instances and ways, act in the name and on behalf of their children. Children are bound by the promises and engagements of parents, and to this arrangement, human laws, equally with divine, give their sanction and approval. The principle is illustrated and exemplified in the institution of Christian baptism, in which parents assume vows and make engagements for their children. The exercise of this right is seen to be eminently reasonable, when it is considered that the interests of parents and children are so connected and identified that they cannot in any case be absolutely disjoined. When men choose representatives in the persons of civil or ecclesiastical functionaries, the basis of representation is their own choice. But, in the case of parents, the right of representation rests upon a higher, more solid and enduring ground. It is a prerogative of the parental relation, a God-given right and has for its basis, a divinely authorized constitution. Levi paid tithes in Abraham, because he was in the loins of his father, when Melchizedek, met him. Here the constitution established by God, and on the ground of which children are identified with their parents in certain social transactions, is recognized with a distinctness that puts its existence beyond the reach of doubt. It seems, therefore, to be a just and obvious inference from these views, that no objection can be brought against the permanently binding force of religious covenants entered into by the church, that does not lie ultimately against that appointment of God by which parents are constituted the representatives of their children.
and this fact, of itself, ought to be held as an ample vindication of the doctrine against the charges of unreasonableness and injustice. The principle that covenant obligation binds posterity, is as ancient as human society, and has been constantly recognized by men and by communities in transactions of a civil kind. Scripture history furnishes several apt illustrations. The case of Joseph and his brethren is in point. Shortly before his death he exacted from them a sworn promise and engagement that, on leaving Egypt, they would carry with them his bones for the purpose of interment in land covenanted to his fathers. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. Genesis 50 verse 25 What is the subsequent history of this transaction? Did the children of Israel in their haste to leave Egypt forget or dishonor the promise of their ancestors? The religious observance of the oath is a subject of distinct record by the sacred historian. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. Exodus 13 verse 19 the ground upon which the transportation of the patriarch's bones is distinctly put, is the oath taken by the representatives of the nation generations prior to their actual removal. Besides, as Joseph certainly knew that all his brethren and all that generation would die, before God would visit his people with deliverance, it is evident that he must have regarded those immediately addressed by him as the representatives of their successors, and have considered the oath exacted of them as binding on their posterity. The covenant made with the Gibeonites shortly after the entrance of Israel into Canaan, supplies another apposite illustration. The history of the transaction is recorded in the ninth chapter of the book of Joshua, and is familiar in its detail to Bible readers. That wily people, by pretenses and false representations, imposed upon the elders of Israel, and induced them to become parties to a league stipulating the safety of the Gibeonites, engaging to preserve them alive. The Hebrews, on discovering the fraud, expressed dissatisfaction with the conduct of their rulers, in that they had acted with culpable incautiousness. At the same time as the treaty has been ratified by the proper representatives of the nation, the people held themselves bound by its stipulations. And the children of Israel smote them not, because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. There is unquestionable significance, too in the fact that near 400 years subsequent to the conclusion of this treaty, the violation of it by the bloody house of Saul, was visited with the severe and manifest judgments of heaven. God thus attesting in a manner unequivocal and awful, that he holds posterity sacredly bound by the covenants and engagements of their ancestors, remote as well as immediate. Analogous to these inspired facts, at least in its bearing on the present argument, is the statement in Amos 1 verse 9. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyrus, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom, and remembered not the brotherly covenant. The brotherly covenant, with the violation of which the Tyrians were charged, there is reason to suppose, was no other than the league that existed between David and Solomon, kings of Judah, and Hiram, king of Tyre and in this view a disregard of the principle that covenants bind posterity is expressly adduced as a reason justifying, and a crime calling for the infliction of divine judgments. There is nothing hazarded in asserting that a denial of this principle in its application to civil society, 
would unsettle and overturn its foundations, introduce misrule and disaster under every form. Ignore the doctrine in question, and it results that national treaties, treaties of amity and peace, treaties of commerce, national debts, and every possible form of national contract negotiated by one generation, may, without any reason beyond a wish to have it so, be disowned and repudiated by the generation that follows. A doctrine so pernicious in its tendencies, so baleful in its consequences and issues, so repugnant to national justice, morality and virtue, cannot be true. Thus far, the principle that covenant obligation is descending and permanent, has been viewed in its more general aspects and bearings. The scriptures are not silent on the subject, nor is their testimony scant, ambiguous or obscure. Such declarations as the following occur, they have broken the everlasting covenant. Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant. But on the supposition that the covenants mentioned in these cases possessed obligation over one generation only, with what propriety are they designated everlasting and perpetual? In this view, the use of such descriptive terms amounts to a gross misapplication of language, a misapplication too palpable and needless to admit even an apology. That which lasts only during the period of a man's natural lifetime, is neither perpetual nor everlasting. But on what principle other than that of descending and permanent obligation, can posterity be rightfully charged with guilt in disregarding the conditions of covenants made with their ancestors? But mark what God has said on this subject. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant which I made with their fathers. Jeremiah 11 verse 10. Could the house of Israel and the house of Judah break a covenant, with the obligation of which they had nothing, either directly or indirectly, to do? The inquiry contains its own answer. If anything further is necessary to complete the chain of proof, it is found in the distinct assertion that posterity were included in the original ratification of given federal transactions. The covenant established between God and Abraham, embraced the seed of Abraham, in their generations, to the end of the dispensation of the gospel. And if identity with Abraham in the making of the covenant, confers a claim to the privileges promised and secured in its provisions, it is reasonable, surely, to maintain that the same identity brings posterity under its obligations and duties. Had the question been one of privilege merely, there was little room to doubt that it would have met with universal favor and acceptance. Another case, still more apposite to the argument in hand, is the statement of Moses, Deuteronomy 5 verse 3, respecting the covenant ratified with Israel at Horeb. By this time the entire congregation that stood before the Lord at Sinai, with three exceptions, Moses, Caleb and Joshua, had been removed by death. They had perished in the wilderness, according as God had threatened. Yet, with this fact before him, does Moses say to the people, and not a voice was heard in opposition. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us alive here this day. In the land of Moab, immediately before the tribes passed the Jordan and took possession of Canaan, this same covenant, under the auspices and direction of Moses, was solemnly renewed. Hear what he says on the occasion. Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day, before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. Deuteronomy 29 verses 14 and 15. Unless posterity is meant by him that is not here with us this day, 
it would not be an easy matter to conjecture its application. Considerations relevant to this argument, other than those adverted to, could be readily adduced. But our single object has been to show that nature itself teaches that scriptural covenants, scripturally entered into, bind posterity. That men, individually and socially, practice on the principle. And that, on any other hypothesis, the teachings of the Bible are unintelligible, contradictory, and calculated to mislead candid inquirers after truth. This is our reason, in part, at least, for the hope that is in us touching the permanence of covenant obligation. And acting on a full conviction of its truth and sufficiency, we hold ourselves bound by the vows of witnessing and martyred ancestors in the British Isles. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.